Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. Today I'm talking to Paul Loesch and Dennis Jarima, along with Sean Keenan. They started the Prolonged Field Care Working Group. Today, Paul and Dennis are going to be talking about the austere critical care master's program they're enrolled in, as well as their concepts and future thoughts on the prolonged field care. Hey, I'm Paul Lose. Um, I've been doing some prolonged field care now for the last uh, seven or eight years, uh, coming up on nine years, I think. Um, I've been in uh, a couple of different operational units. I started my career as a combat medic in 2003 with uh, several deployments to combat zones and then several other deployments as well. I'm uh, Dennis Jarema, uh, another 18 Delta, just like Paul. Um, I started off in the infantry, strange enough, uh, with 10th Mountain, and then I move over to uh, Special Forces, and I've also got several uh, deployments. I'm going to ask you two some questions about prolonged field care, how it started, and where it's going, and what your future goals are for it. But I first wanted to ask you about your experiences in the Masters of Austria Critical Care program that you're doing with the college. Okay, yeah, so I appreciate it. Um, I was originally looking for a program similar to this or similar to the field of my interest because I didn't want to just go to a school um, to get a a random degree. I wanted to actually learn something in the field of my interest, uh, stuff that I was already doing. But unfortunately, given my uh, time out of operational medicine and even instructing and now administrative stuff. Like I don't get to see patients every day. So I thought it um, important to actually get exposed to go into some deeper medicine and also sustain the skills and knowledge I already had. So instead of going to get uh, some a degree in emergency management, let's say that I didn't plan on using uh, something like this that could further my knowledge and skills and reinforce what I already knew would be more valuable to me Um, I had a plethora of uh, joint service transcript uh, recommended credits and then also I think I've been to four or five community colleges and technical institutes here in the states and I just never ended up with a degree due to deployment requirements and other things that happened so I was looking for something that would fill that gap at a higher level and take what I already knew and what I already had and put that to good use. Yeah and uh you know, why I enrolled is, you know, I had already got my RN, my associates, and, and uh, got my nursing license. Um, but just continue to search for anything that uh, will further my medical ability also got me farther away from operational type medicine. Um, and that's kind of the nature of the beast. Um, so when this popped up, this opportunity happened. You know, I jumped on it because it's specific to things that I care about, which is osteo uh, medicine, osteo critical care. And not only am I going to be able to up my own game, but I can also pass that information along to uh, my uh, brethren so that they can also up their game. Thanks for that. And, and what do you guys plan to do with this degree program? You know, I plan on probably continuing what I've been doing um, as far as training, um, you know, combat medics. Um, But, uh, you know, there's also several other opportunities 
constantly as far as going uh, overseas or or different contract work and just having a degree like this I mean it opens things wide even farther to be able to go even more austere and uh, you know some pretty adventurous places yeah I would say right now it seems like in that world that Dennis is talking about the baseline uh, requirement is to be an, an REMTP and most of us in soft now are, are going that direction we're getting our NREMT paramedics but not very many of us are actually utilizing that and so one big weakness we see is the the lack of experience in the the ACLS and the higher level critical care and uh, this definitely gives you that opportunity to learn more in that on that side of things and then uh, you know not being a credentialed clinician you know you're a, a certified paramedic if at that point um, it it really depends on who you're working for and the scope of practice that they're going to allow. But if you don't have the knowledge or the skills, they're definitely not going to allow it. Do either of you guys have an inkling of teaching in academia in the future? Yeah. I mean, uh, I would say that we, we do teach in academia as far as the military is concerned. Um, our students are probably their knuckles go a little closer to the ground than maybe most, but, uh, yeah, absolutely is and i think it's it's necessary you know as we as disasters you know whether natural or man-made happen you know civilian medical systems find themselves in very austere conditions and they don't necessarily have the experience of how to deal with that so i think having people capable of, of working in that type of environment just improves care all the way around yeah, I would say for me specifically, like I've I've gotten to do that quite a bit over the past uh, five years or so, um, traveling all over the world, teaching doctors, PAs, nurses uh, who usually work in hospitals how to kind of transition to work outside of a hospital with limited resources. So I've been pretty lucky as far as that's concerned. So this is just another avenue to be able to do that. I want to change pace a bit, lads, because I mean, the, the elephant in the room is the the what you two have done in the past with can can you talk about the start of the PFC working group? How did that get off the ground, and how how are you guys? How did you guys get to where you are now? Yeah, that's a great question. If we go all the way back to to 2013, there was a group in NATO talking about the same uh, the same thing as far as extended care or prolonged field care. Here in the U.S., we were also looking at the same issue because the Global war on terrorism was still going strong, but there are many other deployments that our guys go on where there's there's not a doctor or nurse or any other higher clinician available. So uh, we were still stuck with A, prepping for a combat, but also B, prepping for everything else. And that included uh, doing austere medicine without any kind of backstop all over the world. So 2013, NATO got together and they said, we're going to call this prolonged field care. Um, we had the Special Operations Medical Association conference there in Tampa in December of 2013 and I remember Sean and Justin both uh, presenting subjects uh, topics on that subject and then from there I was lucky enough to be present as like a young E6 at the time where my PA had dropped out so there was an open slot to SOMA and they said hey you want to go I was always up in the aid station for one reason or another and I jumped on that opportunity. And so when I saw them talking about this stuff and the, the 
conference was coming to a close. Everybody's getting ready to go back home. Um, we still had, obviously, a lot of uh, unanswered questions, despite the uh, the presentations that they both gave. So we knew we had all these questions that, that were popping up, and the more we looked into it, the more questions we had. At the same time, during some of these deployments, we would end up in an austere environment where it was so austere, and the things we were doing, we would uh, request a surgical team, and we had some great conversations with those surgical teams. But it was, you know, two medics, and you had a surgeon and a CRNA, and whoever else was there with them. And so we have these great conversations that were going uh, unrecorded; nobody else could get them. You know, it was it was just us. So at that time, Justin and Sean and uh, I think there were a couple others originally as well who started the podcast. So the podcast was started um, from those conversations we had uh, in Africa. We wanted to kind of revisit some of those subjects and kind of do deep dives into each one of those things, whether it be telemedicine, the overall idea of prolonged field care, or other specific subjects. So we started doing the podcast um, soon after that uh, SOMA conference. Well, I think my my small contribution there was that I got to kind of just raise my hand and say, okay, great. This conference is coming to an end. You guys want to start a podcast, but how are we going to maintain the integrity of this group who wants to continue working together going forward? And there was no kind of social media presence at that point. So I said, Hey, let's just start a website for show notes and some kind of social media, Facebook for us to all stay in contact because a lot of times those email chains would get unwieldy or you would have to, uh, set up conference calls and most people couldn't make it so social media worked out really well and that uh that blew up pretty quick on the website side of things as i started listening to the podcasts and writing show notes for those initial first few um that's probably where i started learning the most when you're either prepping for a podcast or you start prepping for the show notes you're looking through the research you're getting all the the, uh, the resources that the guys need like that really cements some of those uh, lessons learned in your head because you're seeing the same thing over and over and over. So for every podcast, it might be you record for an hour and a half, you edit for five hours, um, you do research for the show notes, you edit the the podcast or the uh, the show notes themselves, and then you release it. And then also after that, it wasn't just getting released on the website, but it would actually get released on all the social media platforms. And so I would be constantly engaged with people asking questions, whether it was Instagram, uh, Facebook, sometimes Twitter. And so the, the information was being um, bombarded on me from, uh, from the get-go for every single one of those podcasts, and they were cumulative. So as time went on, you would still get questions from those early podcasts, and then you would get more from the additional ones. And uh, it's a big job. So I think at some point, Dennis came on, he started helping out. Um, I got super busy with uh, my instruction and everything I was doing at work. So Dennis ended up uh, taking over the podcast side of things. And I still maintained the website at that point. What about you, Dennis? Yeah, I mean, I think I came in at the, the probably the perfect time because all the work was done. Um, so it was really just you know, having uh, a schedule and just organizing things. And when I took over the podcast um, and just staying on target and because of my, where I was working at the schoolhouse, uh, I got to see all the questions that people had. And so that was, I mean, that's too easy to make a, a topic for a podcast 
to answer somebody's question. Yeah, the one thing that I can't discount is there was a huge effort. There were over 100 people on an email, and we called ourselves a prolonged field care working group at that time. So whenever there was an issue, this is before we had any kind of clinical practice guideline, we would go for a kind of expert consensus, which counts for something when there's nothing else, you know, because we were still actively sending teams out the door with these questions and no answer. So at that point, we said maybe an 80% answer is better than no answer. And then we can go and uh, really dig into literature and everything after that. So we had position papers that went in on the JSOM. We had clinical practice guidelines that we started writing. Uh, we had then lower than that, obviously, were the blog posts that we wrote. And so you were kind of doing every level of uh, academic rigor from none whatsoever in opinion all the way up to uh, analyses and doing actual research, which obviously that takes a long time. So for that research to actually come to fruition, you know, it, it was probably already 2017, 2018 when this thing started in 2013. So there was a, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of uh, effort by a lot of people inside the joint trauma system, outside the joint trauma system, civilian institutions, inside the military, uh, everybody kind of working together to get all these answers. And then I just got to be lucky enough to be the touch point and the person to disseminate those once it was something that was worth getting out there. And the last thing I'll say on that is also being exposed to all my other fellow medics is guys have some amazing ideas and solutions to problems that other people haven't even faced yet. And so what you see in soft a lot of times are these tiny little silos everywhere and one guy will figure out a solution to a problem and that fixes his problem and he goes about his day, but then he'll bring it up to me and, and I'll be like, oh, that's pretty interesting because I've had four or five other people bring up similar things. So you saw the wheels getting built and rebuilt and rebuilt by the by different people all across the enterprise. And uh, that was another thing where if, if I could take a cheat sheet that some guy is using and post that, somebody else doesn't have to create that cheat sheet. They can now use that brain energy and the time that they have on something else. So I think that's where that was also really valuable. Right. And I mean, it's not just, you know, copying and pasting other people's stuff. You're also, it's um, essentially like a board review over, you know, essentially the world of medicine anyway. And, you know, you get people's comments about, you know, different uh, medications or different dosings or different considerations. And it just keeps getting refined and refined and refined until, um, you know, I, you have something that works really well in a lot of different situations. So it, it sounds like, I mean, I've, I've seen a profound team approach to this as well um, of, of a lot of people who are, have been involved with uh, the CPG side of things, the research side of things. I came in a bit late, uh, it was 2015, I think, that I started to uh, see what you guys are doing. And and by that time, Paul, like you said, that that uh, you had a lot of um, push to, to get more of the science behind that, evidence-based medicine behind that. So uh, let me ask you guys this. Uh, where where do you see PFC now? So where do you plan to push PFC? It, it's now that you have the PCC with the normal army and the PFC is now soft only. Um, what what improvements you see coming down the road or what, what would be the, the, the golden uh, nugget that you would like to see this in, in five years? Where, where would you like this to be? That's a great question. I don't know if I've ever considered like 
to set a goal or where, where we would want to be in five years, as crazy as that sounds, it's more of hitting the targets as they pop up. That's kind of how it's been the past few years. But with the prolonged casualty care groups, there's one doing a uh, kind of a required curriculum and then there's the no, another one that does the guidelines and they're uh pretty intimate with each other they get together they still talk about um obviously the guidelines are going to uh impact the curriculum but jamie reesberg and uh, mike remley did an amazing job on that i got to add a little bit of my two cents but there was another a whole another group of people that we um then reached out to at that point because we we did want to reach out to the rest of the conventional force because my, my time in the conventional army as a medic uh, was long gone. So we wanted to make sure that the Navy, the Air Force, um, everybody else was represented as well. So that was, it made it a little more challenging. And I think what they ended up coming out with is a great product in that, uh, the overall CPG, that, that's the prolonged casualty care CPG. So what I think is gonna happen going forward is that will get more robust as the prolonged field care uh, clinical practice guidelines actually sundown. I mean, if you look, I think the burn one was written in 2016. So now that's already six years old. So as they update the burn care recommendations, they'll just update them on the PCC guidelines and then probably end up deleting the old PFC guidelines. And the, the, the interesting thing about all these guidelines is you have to write that for the E2 combat medic that's maybe in a conventional unit deployed somewhere or you, that goes all the way up to the uh, the tier four where you get past soft medics and you have a, a PA and a battalion surgeon in an aid station with a bunch of medics. So it was really a, a task to try to hit all those uh, demographics and make sure that it made sense for all those people. And again, they're just guidelines. It's just something for some people to start with. But you can imagine if you just came out of IPAP or let's say you're a GMO there in the Navy, you haven't even gone through your residency and they say, okay, you're in charge of the, the people on the ship. What does that mean to you? And how do you even start preparing for that? Um, this is a great way to at least get a jump on it. And then if you're, uh, let's say you're, you're well-versed in one area, but not another, you could then focus your efforts, preparing yourself and training yourself with those guidelines in the areas that you're weaker at. Yeah, I, where I would like to see prolonged field care, you know, in five years, um, I mean, I'm already kind of blown away about how much we've actually moved. I mean, whereas we've essentially, I think, turned the Titanic, you know, 90 degrees. Um, but, you know, there's still, what I like about what's happened, I guess, is I've seen the, the kind of the cadre of their caliber of the medics, you know, definitely like ballooning out. You know, it's not just tourniquets and chest seals and needle Ds. You know, now they're pushing blood, you know, they're using more sophisticated medications, you know, they're thinking longer term, um, because that was actually a reality, you know, in GWAT, you know, you'd have a patient off the ground in 15, 20 minutes, and we never really had to deal with, you know, longer casualty care, and so we had a bunch of, you know, the thought process is essentially just those short interventions, get them on the bird and move about your day. Um, now it's not the case. So just kind of opening people's aperture as far as what is going to be required for this mission set. And, you know, I've seen the medics, you know, rising to the occasion, 
you know, asking better questions, asking more in-depth things, and I would like to continue moving in that direction, you know, not just with guidelines and uh, podcasts, but we also got to think about even the small things, the small details that add up to big things. So I'd also like to push into more uh, video type demonstrations and how-to type stuff myself. Yeah, on that with the video stuff, the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care has done a great job with all the TCCC stuff. So when you get into the baseline medical knowledge, there is a plethora now of videos, uh, guidelines. They have the curriculum pretty much written out up to Combat Lifesaver, I believe, at this point. So as that expands um, and guys are, are getting to the point where they're proficient, you know, because you shouldn't just jump right into prolonged field care. You have to make this common disclaimer. Get good at TCCC and get good at clinical medicine, and then you can start tackling what happens next because you don't want to start looking at crush and burn injuries long-term before you know how to treat them short-term or just put on tourniquets and junctional tourniquets. Um, so what, what I do notice is that if somebody is weak at TCCC or even just uh, normal clinical medicine, that if you put them in a prolonged field care situation, what I notice personally, and this is my own opinion, is that they then notice their own weaknesses because they then have to deal with their own uh, inaction or the wrong action. If they don't get a tourniquet on in time and you build the scenario correctly, then that forces them to deal with their own consequences. And so I think that's a great way for guys to learn. Whereas if you just train a 10, 20 minute scenario, they don't get the tourniquet on, they don't get blood on, they hand the patient over, those consequences are lost on them because they would be put on the next level of care as opposed to uh, dealing with them themselves. So I think it's a good way to open people's eyes in one, in one form or fashion, but it's also a great way to, uh, to teach. It is a valid point. I mean, Sean Keenan always says with, you don't have PFC without TCCC. Uh, and, and deploymentmedicine.com is doing really good with the videos. Do, do you see prolonged field care having something similar uh, as far as website videos and, and education that you see on deployedmedicine.com? Yeah, I think uh, I, I should probably address that. So the prolonged casualty care, I think, is going to end up being, I don't, don't quote me on this, but I think it'll end up being a sub-working group of COTSI. And so there will be a group of people who specifically work on that the PCC guidelines, but under COTSI and under the joint trauma system. And then I think where Dennis is going to fall, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, is we'll still focus on soft efforts and the R&D of some of these uh, TTPs and maybe not equipment, but at least the research, the questions, and how our guys are doing this, this stuff around the world. Because as I said before, if you have medics deploying to 70 plus countries, every day, all day. We, we learn a lot of lessons. We just have to collect them and then disseminate them appropriately. What do you think, Dennis? Yeah, it's, again, like, I'm, we're just trying to, I guess, for the PFC specifically, our target is, is the uh, special operations. Um, but, you know, everything feeds kind of into everything else. Um, so lessons learned from us always move over to more conventional forces. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. I need. Um, I think we really need to, you know, show people how to do things. And once you once you show them how, you know, as an example, like 
uh, different ways to get an IV access on somebody who's hypovolemic. Like that's a pretty that's a pretty tough trick um, when you're just used to practicing on healthy people. Um, but if you kind of arm people with kind of a pace plan of how to do this, they are going to be much better prepared. So I, I would like to kind of push into videos like that, um, just showing alternative ways to get the job done. That's uh, it's quite an undertaking to, to, to be able to start um, divvying up all the tasks found within PFC to get people, actors, uh, to, to, to start making these videos. But uh, we have a template. The deployedmedicine.com has uh, professional-level um, videos and, and, and PowerPoint slides, some of them in Ukrainian now for, for the conflict, as well as downloadable PDFs. And it's something um, that I, I think the PFC Working Group can emulate for the soft um, plong field care guidelines. Maybe it's pretentious, but um, I, I think that's that would be a good direction in the next five years. Yeah, from what I've noticed on our on the website, when we were really active is that those PDFs and cheat sheets and things were uh, by and far the, the most downloaded things, the most visited uh, pages of that website that there were. So yeah, you're right. I mean, guys are always looking for these resources when you have limited time to prepare and somebody else has done that work for you. Uh, that's a huge help. That's definitely something we could talk about for the, for the next five years and, and moving us forward. You guys have put a profound momentum in place with PFC, and I, yeah, I would like you. to see that momentum continue on and, and be you guys be the leaders in uh, this, this soft level prolonged field care. Uh, it's a it's pretty amazing to see what you guys have done. So, uh, any uh, last comments you guys will have? I kind of want the uh, absolute open blank slate comments that you guys have about the college or about. Any experiences or uh, anything you would like the listeners to know? I've got two that pop into my head right away when you ask that. So the first one was during 702, we had a bunch of videos and they were everything from uh, presentations on, let's say, burn care from Dr. DeMello up to you had actual case studies presented from KCMC. And um, those were invaluable. So if you've never, like for what I was talking about before, if you've never just taken a podcast and had had the idea to write down show notes, it was very similar to what we had to do for those videos as far as uh, writing out the Gibbs review. Um, while maybe some of it was a little repetitive, the questions that they asked, the, the overall feeling was the same where you're listening to the, to the speaker, you're interacting with them if you could log on at the same time, although you didn't have to, so that was convenient. But then you would have to go back probably listen to it again, maybe, but then uh, write down your thoughts and then what you would do with it in the future. So that was actually pretty valuable. Um, but to me, the most value I got out of uh, 702 are those case studies. I mean, when you're talking about a guy, a patient who um, I think one of them fell off of a road, severed his spine, and then was something like 200 kilometers from the clinic where they needed care. So they sent a motorcycle team to go pick this guy up who had a severed, uh, a severed spine, you know, a, a pretty severe back injury, put him on the motorcycle with somebody driving and then sandwiched him between that and another caregiver and drove the 200 kilometers 
back to the uh, critical care facility. That was that was mind blowing to hear stuff like that. So the stuff that those guys deal with every day. I mean, they're running vents with no ABGs, with no capnography, um, and the guidelines that they've kind of been uh, doing for themselves are, those are mind-blowing. So those are one of the most valuable things that I got out of the whole experience. Yeah, it's just kind of the breadth of experience that you get out of it. Not only the instructors um, or presenters, but also you have the students, and they're, again, they're from all over the world, and... Um, you know, how they deal with a situation, um, you know, is, is drastically different than, you know, what we may do in, you know, our tiny little bubble. Um, and it's good to kind of open things up and, and see how other people kind of tackle this job and, you know, learn from that experience. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the different, even the differences between the, the paramedics in Canada, let's say, um, versus somebody who's contracting in a in a war zone or a conflict zone i mean some of them resemble what we do and then some of them are so completely different where yeah you definitely can gain some pearls from the other students interacting uh, i think the last thing that i would add uh, to this whole thing maybe i was thinking about it some more like where would i like to see this going is that i think we've done a pretty good job of kind of disseminating information on what to do and kind of how to do it. But I think at this point in my career, you know, facing down uh, the end of my army career in the next year or so, like how do you prepare other people, not just to do it, but to teach it. So I've really been trying to focus on how do you instruct other people to instruct these subjects, you know, these very complex uh, topics that maybe they haven't had the chance to put in um, the hundreds or thousands of hours of, of study, but I think I think we're getting to the point where there are some pretty um, solid guidelines that we can have them go off of. We just have to show them a little bit more. So now when I teach medics, I say, hey, this is not just for you, but when you are teaching this, this is a good way to do it. So I try to try to preface most of what I teach in that um, in that sense, and I think that gets another level of buy-in from them because then they they quickly remember like, oh yeah, it's not my job just to do this, but it's my job to teach my own teammates and my partner force whenever I deploy around the world. So um, that's a, a great opportunity to spread the knowledge. That's a valid point with, within the military as, as well, NGO. Uh, you, you need to train the people around you to, because you're the, if you're the only medic, they're the, they're the ones that will be working on you if, if you go down. But more importantly, teaching people how to teach. And that, I remember on, on the ODAs, I mean, we go to JSETs and, and, and this is what we do that we, we teach, but I don't remember once where we went into a country and taught them how to teach as, I mean, so when we leave, they continue on with that, that teaching. So, so Paul, you're absolutely right. Teaching someone to teach is a challenge. Uh, the instructor development courses, uh, there, I mean, there's tons of them out there, but, um, there's a lot of really good medics that wash out and, and within the college i I get MD PhDs who come in and say, I want to, I want to teach on it. And you put them in front of the class. And you're like, no, 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 no. So how do you teach someone to teach is, is a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think they got to have uh, the desire has to be there for sure, but then you, you need some experience. I mean, there's, you can't get good at teaching without teaching again, just like medicine. So you got to get up there and do it, but then you really have to relate to your audience and, uh, you're definitely going to, going to stumble. You're going to fail. You're going to, 
you're going to learn and you just have to do it. And I think I've, at this point, I've had a lot of opportunities to go and do that. And just reframing the way that I teach as far as, okay, if you're teaching this, this is how you're going to do it. Or I suggest this, this has worked for me. Um, being able to share those little bits and pearls has been really valuable to my students. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously you need experience to do, just be called to the game, you know? Um, but I think where I see a lot of instructors fail, especially initially, is they they uh, they don't leave their ego at the door, and they spend more time trying to convince other the students that uh, they know what they're talking about, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and they kind of lose focus on it's this it's the entire point of this you know class or course or whatever is the student, to bring the student up. So um, if there was anybody, if there's one piece of advice I could give to anybody looking to teach is like, just that reassurance, like you've made it. They've, you've been asked to teach because people already know that you have something to provide. Um, just convey that information to the students. And, you know, it's, it's okay that they have questions because if they already knew it, they wouldn't be in the class. So, um, you know, just kind of have that uh, humility and maybe some empathy as well for the students. And I think things go a lot smoother. Yeah, another thing that comes to mind when we're talking about this is, I remember having a JSET maybe back in 2012, uh, a joint combined training exercise with a a partner force where they had been taught TCCC 12 times by prior units. So then I get there and my plan is to teach them TCCC, not knowing that. And I do a quick assessment and, oh man, these guys are actually really proficient. What do I do now? Like, what do I teach uh-huh. next? And uh, I think if we're talking about prolonged care and they've already mastered that TCCC, they've done it a couple times a year with different teams over and over and over. I think you have to elevate their game as well and so that's kind of what my focus has been on is arming those medics with those uh the the teaching pearls so that they can then go into these other countries and teach their partner forces that stuff yeah yeah it's just the key to just kind of plant that spark um to ask the students those questions that uh, make them curious and want to expand uh, their knowledge um, as long as you provide a framework that they can stay within, um, even when you when you leave, they're just going to continue growing. That that is the the desire of all instructors, isn't it? For for them to continue to grow and and possibly even surpass you as in their knowledge, or, and and teach them how to learn and how to um, to be better. I I um I think one of the one of the biggest lessons I have to give to the, my faculty who come in and, and teach is the humility uh, and not going in and saying, I'm God's greatest gift to, to this, or, you know, I, I, I knuckle, I'm a knuckle dragger. I've done this. I, I, um, and, and be able to say, uh, I don't know. So if, if, and it happens all the time, I teach docs and they're smarter than me. They're dark have more educated than me and that's fine. And, and having them ask questions and like, uh, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. And, 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 and I learned from that as well. Yep. When you, when you get a really strong student that has uh, like memorized a guideline that I haven't looked at in a few years and they're asking questions about it, I'm like, Oh, 
I better get back and <laughs> look at that one again. But it's great. It's great to be challenged, uh, especially on the stuff that we already put out. You know, it's yeah. hard to stay abreast of everything in medicine all at once. Yeah. But I mean, even you, you say you, you get that guy who's memorized everything. Well, then, I mean, the next next question is, all right, well, go do it. And then you find other holes, you know, because you always have everybody is across the spectrum. You have the guys that are maybe they aren't very advanced in their knowledge, but they're very good at doing the basics very well. And you have the other end of the spectrum where you have somebody who's memorized all the guidelines, all the books, they know all the answers on a written test. But when you ask them to do it in actual, in actuality, um, then they you start to find holes. So everybody has something to learn. And sometimes it's just learning that you need to shore up your base a little bit harder. Um, you know, still allows that person to expand. You know, it's medicine, it's the art of medicine. So it's not just memorizing facts and figures to put it into a machine. Like you actually have to do the thing. And sometimes the patient doesn't react the way you thought it was gonna happen. So what do you do next? Yeah, great point. Yeah, I, I see this as like head knowledge and hand knowledge. And, and you, yeah, you're right. So there's gonna be somebody in the classroom that knows more about the critical care textbook than, than, than we do. And, and they can start quoting uh, research studies and, but uh, can they do a BVM? Can, can they, can, do they, do they have the hand knowledge to back up the, um, the, and on the other hand, you have somebody, well, I can do femoral lines. Great. Tell me the science behind it. Oh, yeah. You, you need both. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And it's okay to have a hole in your knowledge. It's not okay to let it sit there. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, well, Lance, I, I, I appreciate your time. I, I know that um, you, you guys have to um, get back into the the, uh, the classroom there at Bragg, but I appreciate your time. And I look forward to seeing you guys complete your Master's of Osteocritical Care and, uh, and continue to um, thrive. Uh, you you are impressing me as you as you go through the program. It's really it's an honor to have you there. Oh, I appreciate it, Albert, for, uh, especially for the opportunity to you know be a part of this cohort. Yeah, no, thanks to you and and all the faculty, uh, Dr. Demello and Diosei and everybody else. That was yeah. they're great. All right, lads, appreciate it. Uh, I know you got to get back. What we have nine minutes to get back to the classroom. Sorry about that. Um, good crack, as we say in <laughs> Ireland. <laughs> Paul Lose, Dennis Rima, thank you for joining me today on the podcast, and I look forward to seeing what you can do on the Masters of Osteocritical Care. That is it for this podcast, and we will see you next week. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine Foundation. If you would like to earn CPD credit for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credits, free access to the virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on the college website, which is quorum, C-O-R-O-M, quorum.org.